LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Evelyn Sardamov, who joins us to discuss his book, Mental Penguins, The Never-Ending Education Crisis and the False Promise of the Information Age. Sardamov draws on key findings in neuroscience to explain decreasing attention spans, a crisis of curiosity and waning interest in and knowledge of complex social issues in the United States and around the world. Attributing this trend to the effects of information overload, ubiquitous screens and constant access to the internet, he argues that chronic overstimulation generated by the current socio-technological environment fosters addictive tendencies in today's young people, many of whom will graduate from profit-driven universities both mired in debt and unprepared for life in the outside world. This worrying and worsening situation also breeds apathy, disengagement and social dysfunction and almost certainly contributes to the ongoing decline in written and spoken language and even basic cognition. All this among an increasingly narcissistic and entitled populace weaned on celebrity culture, safe spaces and political correctness. As with many mostly technological problems, the solution is too often seen as the application of yet more technology. If we wish to stop this downturn, however, and ultimately change course, we must be prepared to face some very uncomfortable truths. Hello and welcome, Evelyn, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. My pleasure. Okay, today, Evelyn, we're going to talk about uh, your book, which is entitled Mental Penguins, The Never-Ending Education Crisis and the False Promise of the Information Age. Before we dive into that, just give listeners a little brief overview about your career and your work in general. I grew up in a small city in Bulgaria back in the 70s, then got my PhD in political science in the United States in the 90s from the University of Notre Dame, and now this is my 20th year of teaching at the American University in Bulgaria. I teach political science, though I doubt that humans can be best studied scientifically. And a little over 10 years ago, I became interested in uh, research in neuroscience and how recent findings can help maybe understand some social and cultural and political trends. 10 years ago, I published, I think, the first article linking shifts and differences in political culture to changing patterns of uh, brain wiring, neurophysiological functioning. And now I have the book. Okay, now it's clear from reading the book that this is based, um, or rather a lot of your 
thoughts uh, in the book are based on your direct experience um, in education. So perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about that, you know, how your work experience is directly linked to what you've published. Uh, it's linked both to what I have published, but also to my experience in teaching. So maybe I should start with the teaching part. This is, in fact, an attempt to explain to myself a paradox that I observed for many years after I started teaching. Initially, coming out of graduate school, I had not received any training in how to be a good teacher. So, in fact, initially, my courses were probably quite dull. I relied on longer journal articles, 25 pages, book chapters. Classes were not particularly interactive. And still, somehow, most of my students were able to learn quite well. They were able to master English. Even those who did not really shine, still they had solid knowledge and had solid grammar and uh, were a pleasure to work with. Uh, gradually, uh, as I started to notice some problems with understanding and slight confusion in some of my students, I started to try to leaven up the courses, make them a bit more interactive, rely more on shorter articles, which are still conceptual, but a bit less burdensome, uh, to interject short video seg segments into classes so they could illustrate some important points, maybe read, discuss a very brief article in class, things like that. And uh, I also started to be very much interested in my students, talk to them, but also read about how young people learn. I honestly believed I was becoming a better teacher by all measures. Somehow, gradually, I saw growing cognitive difficulties. Even in students who were motivated and who did desire to learn, in some cases, there was just confusion and inability to link some of the more specific points we're discussing to the larger issues. And uh, this is how I started to read about you know, neuroscience and research of neuroscience and learning. Since then, over the last maybe 10, 12 years, this has continued. <laughs> and uh, this is what I notice when I talk to colleagues here at the American University in Bulgaria, but also abroad in the United States, Australia, European countries, that they notice growing polarization within the student body. Students who shine, who are as good as we have ever had, who are able and willing to move ahead. And then many who, again, even if they are eager to learn, they have difficulties and we try to help them. And sometimes we are partly successful and this is wonderful, in many cases less so. Uh, so gradually I become a bit disillusioned with the whole literature on the brain and education and how it can help us you know, manipulate better our students so they can develop a stronger motivation and desire to learn. So this is the learning part. And then on my research, again, uh, I have uh, written a number of articles and research papers now which uh, generally try to link findings in neuroscience to social, political, cultural developments. Uh, in fact, the first paper I wrote, which got me interested in some of those issues, uh, it's probably related to recent political developments. 
I was reading all this literature about how essential emotional responses to decision making in everyday life, but also in politics. And I started thinking, could it be the case that in order to get ahead in politics and maybe in business, you need a really thick skin? But then once you get up there, this is what can stand in the way of effective decision making. And there has been some recent research indicating that, in fact, you no know, power can be a bit intoxicating and it can make leaders in itself. It can make leaders a bit disconnected and uh, impede good judgment when it is most needed. Uh, this was before I started to frame everything in newer terms. <laughs> and then came this article about political culture and a couple of other articles and research papers. Um, two years ago, I published a very long epistemological article, essentially criticizing positivism in the social sciences, which to me seems like an attempt to apply a kind of mechanical thinking, which has evolved in order to be able to understand and keep track of physical processes and physical changes. Applying that to try to understand human behavior and society, which I think requires a different kind of thinking, which is a bit more holistic, empathetic, and so on. And now I'm working uh, on... Uh, no, in fact, last year I wrote a paper trying to explain some of the motivation behind suicidal terrorism. And now I'm working on a paper trying to explain the growing political polarization that we see now in the United States, Britain, other countries. And all this I try to bring to my classes. And uh, uh, the last three years I have been teaching a course which I have called uh, The Social Brain, where we deal with some of those issues. And students are quite excited. Okay, well, to speak again about education specifically, um, I think you can look at almost any era since the dawn of mass education and perceive a problem or certainly find people saying and writing, thinking that there is in fact some kind of crisis. I did a show a few years ago about the work of John Taylor Gatto, and he was a school teacher in New York, and he became incredibly disillusioned with the education system and the, how it was treating children and young people and how it was affecting them long term. But that was very much about the system itself. There's a phrase that you used earlier on in your last statement, cognitive difficulties. Now that's something else altogether. That's really speaking about how people's brains may be changing and how they're able to function. So I've also done a lot of shows about how technology may be causing some of these problems. So technology and what else do you put these changes down to, you know, the, the onset of these cognitive difficulties? I think it's generally overstimulation. Technology, of course, is uh, the straw that can break the back of the camel, but generally I think it's overstimulation. Uh, I have been very much influenced by the work of two, one of them is really a, a neuropsychiatrist, British-American neuropsychiatrist Peter Weibrow, who a few years ago wrote a book called American Mania. And uh, his idea is that really we are not well adapted biologically to such an onslaught of stimuli. 
that we developed a long time ago in the African savanna, where stimulation was relatively sparse, intermittent, where we communicated with a small group of people who are mostly our relatives. And we are better adapted to dealing with this, with face-to-face -face communication within a small group and uh, uh, scarcity, that our brains can become easily overloaded when there is too much out there, where there is this super abundance, when the abundance where there are all these companies whose uh, business model is premised on getting us to have, consume more and more of everything. And of course, information overload. Uh, and uh, the other psychologist who has really influenced me is Fred Previch, who a few years ago again published a book about what he calls the dopaminergic mind in human evolution history. And his, his theory is slightly different. He, so he has a, uh, an evolutionary view which goes back tens of thousands of years. The idea being that with changes in diet and with epigenetic changes, initially, somehow, the dopamine system in the human brain went into overdrive. And maybe ever since we have been pursuing stimulation until a point where we, it became just a bit too powerful. And he thinks that even some uh, psychiatric maladies that we now see being uh, on the growth, um, they're linked to this sort of uh, dopaminergic overdrive that he describes. So I think, frankly, it's overstimulation across the board with technology just adding another layer there, which you're really, really unprepared to handle. Well, I also, speaking of previous uh, shows I've done, I did one with a... Uh, North American researcher called Mary Swingle. I think I may have sent you the link to that show. Yes, yes. I got her book. Ah, excellent. Okay, well, I found her uh, research and her experience to be very revealing. It talks a lot about technology and the problems that that's causing, particularly with younger people, in terms of overstimulation and over-reliance on it. I mention this because I lived through uh, the era when, in schools, generally speaking, they had no computers because they were too expensive. Then I remember the school would get a computer because it's, we were a little bit more affordable and everyone would stand around this thing in awe. Yes. And then <sighs> later on in the 1980s, school got a whole room full of computers because um, they suddenly home computers was the thing. And by the time I'd left school, it was still there was a computer room. By no means did everybody have access to a computer. And people who had computers at home were either very wealthy or just very fortunate, as it was seen then. But of course now... Technology is a huge part of education. It's seen, you're seen as almost deprived if you don't have access to, you know, multiple levels of technology as part of your education. Yes, sure. But also when there are some, any problems perceived in education or the education system, whether it's the system overall or with individual schools or individual students, technology is often turned to, to provide a fix for that. Um, so it's kind of piling more complexity and more technology on top of the existing system. Yes, I do think so. And particularly with children, now there are all these American schools which apparently are shutting down their physical libraries and turning completely to laptops and tablets. And this is where all the content the students have to cover is. And I'm just wondering how this can work. Uh, uh, there is an American expert, her name is Jean Healy. Many decades, many years ago, back in the 90s, she published a book called Endangered Minds. 
and then she published another book about the influence of computers and information technology. And one of the main points that he, she's making is that there's a need for balance. And since students are so much exposed to information technology outside of the school, to ask them also to do most of their schoolwork interact with the screen, it totally unbalances the way they function and it makes it makes learning so much more difficult. And I very much believe in that. Well, there is, um, in Mary Swingle's research, uh, amongst many others, there is good evidence that tablets and screens uh, versus using paper and then by t- extension typing versus actually writing one is definitely superior to the other and that we absorb more information mm-hmm. we absorb more information if we read it on paper than we do on a screen which seems to some people like why would that make a difference apparently it is so and if we physically write things that information is better assimilated than it is mm-hmm. um, if we actually type them which is most curious um, on the face of it. But of course, this is a, a wider aspect of what's happening with physical media in general, isn't it? You know, with objects are vanishing, um, you know, even CDs now are seen, mm-hmm. as, are seen as kind of quite quaint artifacts. I mean, I, I, this morning I had delivered in the post a CD, which I bought online. And uh, I actually reminded myself, I haven't bought a CD for five years. 2012 was the last time I bought a CD. So... That seems to be something to do with um, physicality. And we know, for example, that sitting... I mean, I don't know about you when you were a child, but if uh, when I was a child, even then, um, adults, it was quite a common thing to do to plop a toddler down in front of the TV if you, want, if you wanted them to be distracted for a while. Of course, that's now... It's not just a few hours in front of the TV. It's like TVs, I mean, tablets mobile phone, you name it, all of those things, gaming console, all of those things in every child's bedroom. And of course, this is bound to affect their their brains. You know, for, for good or ill, some people say, oh, it has positive benefits, but the point is, mm-hmm. this is bound to have an effect. No, I agree. And uh, to start with handwriting, my guess is that these fine motor movements that go into handwriting, they just stimulate the brain differently as opposed to typing. And this is what makes it easier to remember things as we take notes by hand. Uh, and uh, there was an article maybe two weeks ago about, I think, Cambridge doing, uh, experimenting with exams taken on laptops, going against the whole tradition of the university, which is to ask students to handwrite. And it turns out some of them now can't. And to accommodate them, they're experimenting with the laptops and typing. Um, in many schools now, Handwriting is not even taught beyond the first grade. And I do think there is something that is lost there irreversibly. I have no doubt about that. Uh, It is not just the handwriting. In physicality, there is something there, definitely. Much has been written about this. Um, And there are some very mundane ways to demonstrate this. Just take proofreading. Why can't we proofread from the screen? Or if we think we can, we print it out, we read again the text, and we find all sorts of things there that we did not spot the first time. It's a richer, it's a richer grasp, a richer comprehension when it's a real object that we hold in our hands. I talked a little bit about this uh, in the book. Uh, so something is changing, and uh, very dramatically. I have to say, with our students, still we're a bit backward and time delighted. <laughs> uh, on exams, for example, I would give students the choice to use a laptop if they want to access information 
or if they are more comfortable typing. And I just ask them to sit in the back so they will not distract other students looking at their screen. Usually in a room of maybe 30 students, there will be at most four or five who take advantage of that. Uh, on the other hand, our daughter, who is now a student at the University of Pennsylvania, a second year student, when last year, in one of her exams, she asked to write by hand, out of 25, 26 students, there were two who wrote by hand. So in this sense, we're a little bit backward and I'm delighted. Well, I will admit in my lifetime that I've gone from, I remember learning to write and it was printing at first, you know, single letters. And then I remember learning to do what we call joined up writing, you know, like an adult. And I remember getting to the point where I was very pleased with my handwriting because it was very aesthetically pleasing, I thought. I thought it looked, it looked good and it was readable. I then noticed over the years, as I wrote less, particularly when I left university and I was just writing less, full stop, you know, pardon the pun, um, I noticed that my writing started to, to degenerate. It was less good. A point came when I realized I'd look back on notes I'd made in joined up writing and I thought I can't really read this very well so I started printing and to this day I write a lot of notes I still read physical books and I write as I did I've got your book sitting next to me here uh, I read the physical book and the notes for this interview I wrote them in a notebook but I print now I print in order that I can read my own writing back to myself and mm -hmm. I'm confessing that's the case now it's not going to stop me writing but it's just interesting that I don't do joined up writing anymore. And that's a function of not writing that much, I think, because I don't actually type a great deal. But um, yeah, mm. I, I don't know if, you're, if you feel that your writing has changed over the years. Um, no, in fact, my writing was terrible from the very start. Okay. I, I'm left-handed, and apparently I was made to write with my right hand. And when this happens, your handwriting is also very quirky. So mine has been always very quirky and it could not really deteriorate much beyond that. So I'm still quite comfortable with the way I handwrite. Do you were talked earlier about overstimulation with technology? Uh -huh. uh, there's also the issue of, of the need to retain information. And it seems that so much information is at our fingertips, to, um, you know, in technological form, whether it's a phone number, you'll find a lot of people don't know their own phone number now because, oh, sure. because they don't need to. Uh, I'm thinking of the ubiquity of the internet. Now, have you noticed any effect with regards to storing of facts and knowledge? That is to say that students may not feel the need to retain a lot of information outside of the exam situation because they feel that it's all there, quote unquote, on the internet even though that it, the internet in itself is actually quite selective. It's all there and it will always be there. So why would I have to remember the, you know, the Gettysburg Address or why would I have to remember the Declaration of Independence or when, you know, who the president of Bulgaria is or whatever? It's all on the internet. That's for sure. And I do think it has become a lot more difficult for everybody to remember all sorts of facts, not just phone numbers, events, anything. Uh, I just think it's a little bit difficult to untangle to what extent this is really a result of people think they know that they can find the stuff out there, they can go it. And to one extent, really, it is a result of all the overstimulation. I note in the book, I, even before Google really developed, I started noticing myself some changes in the way I function and how much more difficult it is becoming to remember some things. And even this uh, very funny quirk, which I initially saw in my American teachers, 
back in the 90s, again, long before Google. Uh, somebody telling a joke or telling an anecdote in an, or outside of class, and the next day repeating it without remembering that they have already told the same joke or the same anecdote. And I thought this was bizarre, until a few years later it started to happen to me. When I came back to Bulgaria, started to work, and my brain and my memory became a bit overloaded with everything I had to juggle related to teaching and research and communicating with friends and family. So I'm just not sure to what extent you can really untangle. Uh, in an experimental setting, yeah, this has been demonstrated that uh, it's uh, the thought that you can find information later that dissuades you from trying to remember it. Otherwise, in real life, I'm not sure to what extent these two trends can be disentangled. Now, before the onset of ebooks and Kindles and what have you, there's still there was certainly a, um, a marked decline with um, children and young people with their uh, willingness to read, and a lot of people back in the day put this down to, for example, like television, and then later it was computer games. Who who wants to read a book? sort of thing, who would be bothered with that. But it seems, this does seem to have continued. Again, I don't know to what extent you feel that this has overlapped with your experience, but I would call it, I don't know if it was your phrase or mine, a, a crisis of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I, I do notice in uh, children and young people today somewhat of a lack of interest in a lot of things that I think are inherently interesting. Um, you know, whether it's, um, astronomy or, you know, the origin of life, even more mundane things, uh, mm. that themselves are like perfectly interesting. You know, for example, you know, who the president of Bulgaria is and, and what the Gettysburg Address was. Yeah, you know, sure. you don't have to be interested in everything, but there seems to be this kind of like, I don't care kind of attitude. Like, mm. it's only, um, been drilled down. Areas of interest have been drilled down to very specifically what interests someone just in the moment and what, what's of direct relevance to them. Mm. But not not a wider general interest, and I don't know if you've noticed any trends along these lines in your work. No, I think there is a trend. It is not just me. There are books out there. For example, uh, Mark Bowlands, his book is very provocatively titled "The Dumbest Generation." <laughs> uh, much research that demonstrates that, in fact, political knowledge among young people has deteriorated everywhere across the board. Uh, I don't know of any exceptions. Uh, maybe there is an explanation for that. Again, with all the stimulation and uh, all the way to get dopamine flowing without going out and having to read and learn. Because really, curiosity, it's a sort of, you know, dopaminergic drive. And if there's a way to somehow satisfy that drive in other ways, maybe curiosity does become weaker. And it will still be there, but it will be mostly for things that are personally relevant. Mostly related to issues that uh, younger people discuss with their peers on Facebook. Uh, this is one of the major trends that I have noticed if I have to think back 10-15 years. The whole adult world of issues, ideas related to society, politics, art, becoming just a little bit less relevant, a little bit more distant. So even whatever curiosity is left, much of that is channeled into exploring other things that are more mundane and more related to everyday experiences. There is uh, also, I believe, a a breakdown of language, uh, not just written, but also actually spoken. And again, some of this is connected to, well, a great deal of it is connected to technology 
And, you know, one of the best examples being so-called text speak, you know, where words, oh, yeah, words yeah. get shortened down and then people start to write those words if they have to write. Uh, it's not uncommon now for people to say that, say this, the pseudo word lol, you know, mm-hmm. instead, mm-hmm. in response to something they perceive to be funny. I don't know, again, if you could perhaps speak to that with regard to your work. And another aspect of this is not just that aforementioned lack of interest in reading, but I think that the breakdown of language written and spoken is bound to have an effect on our thinking processes. So I actually have found reasoning in itself to become weak. I remember speaking to someone who was half my age about the concept of freedom and how how limited it actually was because you know you don't have to you don't have to deviate very much from the mainstream convention convention and consensus to actually find that you're in breach of some law or other. And uh, I just remember the fact that we're talking about freedom is kind of neither here nor there. But very early on in the, in the discussion, this person just couldn't go any further. They just said, I, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. They couldn't actually, they didn't have the mental faculties to even conceptually grasp what I might be saying. And it was kind of, it was a really a light bulb moment for me. Or maybe it was the opposite, you know, it was a light being switched off. Mm. Uh, with uh, language, what I notice most clearly is that it has become a bit harder to master just English grammar and syntax. Uh, this is something that is done mostly through what's called implicit learning. It's done automatically. It needs to sink in. And somehow that has become harder. This is something that everybody I have talked to notices. Most of the time, the reasons are solved in problems with the teaching of writing. Frankly, I think the problems come mostly from all these changes that are uh, going on outside of the learning context. Uh, and part of that is also, I think, uh, some difficulty developing conceptual thinking, developing a mental framework to which you can relate new information so you can make sense of it, so it is relevant. And it seems now younger people are caught in a kind of catch-22. On the one hand, for new information and new knowledge to be interesting and relevant, you must have some sort of mental framework to which you can associate it. And on the other hand, in order to develop this mental framework, you need a lot of new knowledge. And it is very difficult to break through this. Uh, I think ideally what works best is frankly just reading. Reading Texts that are sophisticated, complex, so they're not formulaic, like the typical young adult novel. And on the other hand, they are emotionally appealing. And I think this is, frankly, the best mental workout. I think this is what helps develop thinking. And it is the development of thinking that really feeds into good writing. Uh, For us, probably it's a little bit of more of a challenge because all the teaching and learning is done in English and students when they don't have a good automatic grasp of the language when they have to work hard to decipher sentences paragraphs just to decipher the meaning just technical working memories overloaded it becomes more difficult to step back and just get the larger point from a paragraph or a page that you read And there is also some research indicating that when we read, talk in a foreign language, 
emotional response is slightly dampened. So, for example, it is much easier to listen to somebody swear in a foreign language than in your native language. And on the other hand, the emotional response is tremendously important for downloading, tagging information, experiences is significant, so they are downloaded into long-term memory. And if this suffers, there will be issues. So there are many, many facets of this. And again, I don't want to sound uh, very harsh and uh, like I am accusing young people of lacking curiosity and everything. I do think it's mostly the environment that is a bit overwhelming. And I'm not sure what would have become of me if I had grown up in this environment. But the challenge is there, I think. I watched, recently I watched a documentary that was mentioned in your book, and it was called Declining by Degrees. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of shocked, well, part of it, partly I was shocked, part of me wasn't, at all the things that these American college students were, mm -hmm. were unable to do. There was something on the BBC the other day about the number of young people now leaving school in, in the UK, but doubtless mm -hmm. lots of other places as well, being functionally illiterate. That is to say, they're not completely illiterate by any means. They, they can read and write, but to such a limited extent that it, it really doesn't allow them to function in the world in, in what we would call a normal way. The, although the students in Declining by Degrees weren't like that, some of them were clearly, did not have the skills to be learning at university level, uh, didn't have a lot of conceptual or a lot of practical um, holes in their knowledge and ability. And again, this is something that, um, and I, I will reiterate the point you've just made, but we're not trying to really apportion, put blame on children and young people here. It is the environment, but nonetheless, that's another trend that is there. And um, when I was younger, the, so for someone to leave school being functionally illiterate would have been very rare, mm. very rare. Um, I mentioned a study in the book where I think they found out that back in the 30s, people with secondary education in, I think, in the Netherlands, people with high school education in the Netherlands, they read more books than now, or back in the 90s maybe, Dutch people with high education. So there are some trends there. On the other hand, again, I don't think it's just maybe the young people, even some highly educated people uh, under this onslaught of information. My impression is they have some difficulties connecting the dots. Since you mentioned the documentary, there's another one that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio produced a couple of years ago. It's called The 11th Hour. It's about climate change and environmental damage and everything. I sometimes show the first couple of minutes from that documentary to students because I think it's amazing. Uh, what he has there is uh, a couple of very prominent, high-profile, recognized biologists, biologists, scientists, and they all dwell on this question. When it is so obvious that we are part of nature, why do we imagine that we are not? And frankly, I think this has been discussed <laughs> uh, going back to the 19th century. If you look back to people like Tocqueville or John Stuart Mill, at some point they were worried about growing individualism and growing disconnect. And it's probably a trend that has continued, and again, particularly with uh, the technological, the high tech revolution with television and computers and everything. We're just another stage in this uh, process. 
and a book that I use sometimes in classes is uh, the Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash. So this has been discussed, and there are maybe some social, cultural, technological trends that are interrelated. There have been efforts to connect this and to somehow present a bigger picture, and it is difficult to, for, for many, many people who are very highly educated to connect the dots and see the roots of some of these problems. Yes, I think the the efforts that you've mentioned, you know, to try and block out some information uh, if the senses are being overloaded. I mean, cognitive dissonance is definitely part of that. And I think that would certainly go some way to explaining why people believe things that are not true and don't see things that are right in front of them. Mm -hmm. Oh, I do think so. Uh, there's now all the discussion of fake news and how people can believe such uh, strange ideas. Like, for example, Pizzagate, the guy who went to a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. and started shooting because he was trying to investigate an alleged pedophile ring centered on that um, restaurant where the owner, I think, was a donor to the Hillary Clinton campaign. And it turned out that somebody had analyzed the emails that had been leaked when the email accounts of the Democratic uh, electoral campaign were hacked. And they thought that some words there were in fact code words pointing to the existence of such a, such a pedophile ring. It is crazy, but it wasn't just this one person. Uh, in fact, the majority of supporters of Donald Trump believed when later interviewed, when this had been exposed, that there was something in that. Uh, so I do think this whole obsession now with fake news, it points to something larger. It's not just the echo chambers and people being unwilling or unable to check all the facts. Uh, again, this brings me back to Fred Previch and his idea that uh, the hyperdopaminergic mind, as he calls it, it has some peculiarities. And maybe having a quasi-delusional you know, approach to reality and a slight inability to distinguish between what is real and what is fake and what is made up is at the heart of this. And I'm just afraid it is just going to grow the way we're headed. The idea of having a, a partially or perhaps almost completely delusional view of reality overla mm -hmm. overlaps with uh, another thing that you mentioned a few moments ago in narcissism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, the, the internet, uh, um, how can I put it? The internet amplifies so many things, including what other people are doing, what other people are thinking, what other people have, reminding you about what you don't have. And so I unfortunately come across quite a few young people who don't really want to do anything to, you're not very motivated. Uh, everything is too much work and yet they have a, mm -hmm. they have a tremendous sense of entitlement and, uh, Again, celebrity culture encourages the idea that uh, you know we're all entitled to our fifteen minutes or whatever, and that you too can be <laughs> you too can be famous and rich. You know that, that goes yes. back to our materialistic culture, and uh, you know if you don't have the latest games console, then you're being deprived. And uh, so narcissism, but then also lack of self-discipline. You know because boundaries mm -hmm. are not boundaries are not being set, limits are not mm -hmm. being set, because in many ways political correctness and the no serious consequences for bad behaviour. Um, the idea of safe spaces, contempt for authority. I, I see all of these as dimensions of, of uh, the same problem. Uh, there is an article in The Guardian right now. Um, it's called Our Minds Can Be Hijacked. Uh, 
It's about a group of um, software engineers mostly who developed some of the most addictive aspects of IT related to Facebook and other websites like, for example, the like button and how they at some point started to realize in their 30s, by the way. <laughs> Usually this happens when you're in your 30s. That what they had created, they had in fact let the genie out of the bottle and now they're trying to limit their own use of all these devices but also some of them are thinking about the effects this has on politics and society as you encourage impulsivity and as you discourage you know, people from thinking through all the consequences and having the patience. Uh, I think, how, however, that in this, I think, points in this direction. I think very often when we try to analyze the effects of the internet or of TV, the main focus is, is on content. I think, frankly, it's not the content. It's, as Marshall McLuhan put it, the medium is the message. I think it is the state of mind and even the physiological, neurophysiological state in which browsing the internet, reading online, or reading a book for that matter, it is this state in which the activity puts, uh, puts us in that is important. And if it happens for countless hours, this is bound to have an effect on how we function at a deeper, yet more physiological level. Just mentioning the documentary again, Declining by Degrees, and this also actually overlaps with um, the work of John Taylor Gatto that I mentioned earlier, and, that, mm -hmm. and that's the, the commercialization of education. Now, this is not a new thing, but certainly it's become a huge issue, uh, particularly in recent years. And in Declining by Degrees, it's a lot of that documentary hinges around the fact that the colleges are basically money-making machines. They've got to spend money to attract students in order to get money. Basically, the idea being that it's not about ability as such, it's about who can afford it. I just wonder, in your experience, your work in the education system, um, I know you've pointed out how your country is somewhat different from maybe you know the US or, or some other European countries, but to what extent do you think that overall is a problem. The fact that, you know, this in this day and age, everything has to kind of make a profit. Mm -hmm. And that's had a huge effect on um, how education is delivered. Uh, at the American University in Bulgaria, which is really a relatively small college, we have fewer than a thousand students now, about half of them are from Bulgaria, and the other half are from countries in the region, like Albania, Macedonia, Kosovo, Serbia, and also the former Soviet Union, Russia, Ukraine, countries in Central Asia, um, over the last, again, 10-15 years, there has been a gradual increase in the amount of money the students are paying, and alongside that, I do think there has been a slight increase in the sense of entitlement. On the other hand, I do think there are ways to go around that. So what I try to do in my classes is uh, essentially to try to organize them like the Matrix movie, where <laughs> For some of the best students who are intellectually ambitious and are willing to learn, there are challenges that are more conceptual. And also, apart from that, there are ways to break up the tedium of the class with a brief video segment or something that we need in class, a brief discussion, a brief debate. And uh, this is something that uh, uh, I think does allow the majority of students to, to pay attention and to be not overly dissatisfied. Uh, so uh, if uh, we have to be always 
cognizant of we can't completely alienate our customers. I don't think there's a ways to work around that and to keep them satisfied and help them climb as high up as they can and are willing to. Well, in the same way that the media these days, amplified by the internet, give people often and usually unrealistic expectations about what, what might be waiting for them out in the world and how they can get it or even if they can get it, students will often go into the world, maybe with a college degree, thinking that uh, it's things haven't changed in the recent decades and that it's somehow a ticket that will guarantee you a good job or at least a higher paying job. And of course, in many cases, you are better off with a degree, particularly if you have a vocational degree mm -hmm. that allows you to be something. You know, if you want to be a dentist or you want to be a doctor, there is not really an alternative to, to you know getting qualified in a formal way. That's just how it works. But a lot of people with non-vocational degrees, and I, I have got, Non, I've got a degree in politics, and you can ask what use is that. Mm. Um, but the idea that you can that a college degree um, leads then to higher pay or a guaranteed job or whatever that's gone away for all sorts of reasons, many of which are nothing to do with the education system as such. It's just the economic reality that's changing in the world. But I think expectations versus um, outcomes, I think, are definitely diverging. No, I do agree, and I do see in uh, many of the students slightly stronger self-confidence, but also more utilitarian thinking. Uh, this is related to what you were mentioning. The way I think about it, again, I think it's not mostly the content of the messages that students are getting. Though, of course, just knowing that there is all this stuff and there is all this money out there that is waiting for you, uh, it must have an impact. I just think Again, with all the, all the overstimulation, what is happening is that emotional, visceral reactivity is dampened a bit, because otherwise, how can you survive if you keep reacting to every single you know, uh, tweet or jingle on your cell phone? Uh, and as emotionally, emotional and visceral reactivity is dampened, the result is more utilitarian thinking. This is how we connect the dots. And it's part of technology, but again, I think these are longer-term trends. Going back to the 19th century, there are all these people who started to write about modernization and how society was changing, and usually a very important part of the story was this. Emotions have to be downregulated a bit so that we can function in a modern society. Uh, in my book, I mentioned Zimmel, the German sociologist, who did, a, did some studies and thought about this. No, I think he mostly speculated about this. More than a century ago, the metropolis of mental life, how in the big city, when you have to communicate with so many people, again, we have to tone down our emotional responses because we can't continue to react strongly to every single interaction every day with people we barely know. And in the 70s, there was Tandy Milgram, who did some experiments. But much, much, much of the sociological and philosophical literature also, which talks about modernization, the focus there is on this, on dampened, down-regulated emotional, visceral reactivity. I think, frankly, this is at the heart of the more, more utilitarian thinking that we see everywhere. In students, in social scientists, in politicians, Yes, you mentioned utilitarian detachment. That's your phrase with regard to some of the bright, brighter students that you've dealt with. 
Yes, I relate this again to the kind of thinking that I see in the social sciences, sciences and uh, the kind of expertise that now that goes into public policy or planning campaigns and so on and so forth. And this is what the article I mentioned, uh, I published two years ago, is related to. I do think it's a more mechanical way of thinking uh, that is applied to social problems and this applies to human affairs, which is just inadequate. I read an interesting book recently called The Power of 300, and the gist of it basically is along the lines of what you said near the start of the interview, that technology and society in general has advanced faster than our partly our bodies, but particularly our brains, have been able to cope with. The, the 300 in the title of the book refers to a sort of a, a number of people that uh, societies in the past that you might have been expected to, to have in your, not just in your personal life, but your kind of wider reality. And we see now, for example, a good metaphor is the idea of, you know, on Facebook, for example, people can have 5,000 friends, quote unquote, but, you know, maybe people they, people they have never met, people they know nothing about whatsoever, they're just a name and a face, and, and the face may not even be re real, the name may not even be real, so that you, know, you can see why you would get a degree of emotional shutdown in response to overstimulation, but that, of course, then affects people's relationships in terms of the depth of them as well, because you're trying to manage all this involvement, you know, whether it's with people or with ideas or with things, and it's difficult to have me meaningful, deep relationships if you have that many. You know, you cannot be, mm. you cannot have five thousand deep and meaning meaningful relationships in your life. Uh, yes, I do think this is related to the research and theories that I mentioned. Usually, the response to some of these uh, worries is that uh, we can adapt, and we have always adapted in the past, and we have. Some parts of the brain, some networks, they have been repurposed to do some things they were not intended to do, like, for example, reading, having some of these more complex discussions, and coding, and so on. I'm just thinking there must be a limit beyond which we cannot continue to productively adapt. And I'm just worried that this limit has already been reached. Another aspect I notice of emotional shutdown that we've been talking about is a kind of um, apathy that uh, has overtaken uh, many people, again, of all ages, actually, you know, people who might have had quite a normal development emotionally and um, intellectually up to a certain point, they, they, they go into a sort of a shutdown. And the other aspect I'm referring to is this idea of no future. I've certainly read about and heard from young people who should be in the prime of their lives, making their way into the world, finding out what it is that they're, they re they're really passionate about, finding out who they are. And this, again, partially, you know, again, I'm not trying to blame people here. It's, it is partially what's out there. The system has failed them in many ways, but this complete lack of forward planning, because the idea that what's the point, you know, things are bleak, they're getting bleaker. So why even try? Why even strive? Mm. Uh, there's a lot of research that demonstrates that proper emotional, visceral response, they're essential to how we function socially. Uh, and if this sort of reactivity is being uh, get downshifted and dampened, uh, and frankly, I don't think there is any, any room for doubt about that, uh, there must be some consequences. Um, sometimes I mention in class, and students laugh once in a while, uh, the part from uh, The Little Prince, where the, the fox says something like, 
the most important things you can see only with the heart, the invisible to the eyes. But then my question is, what happens if there was a book that was published a couple of years ago by a young woman in the United States, and the title of the book was When the Heart Says Whatever. What happens when the heart starts to say whatever? Another dimension of this that I concern myself with quite a lot, and I've certainly spoken with many people who've, who do a lot of research in this area, and I've done actually quite a few programs on this. Um, I recently went to see a stage performance of The Machine Stops by, e uh -huh. by E.M. Forster, and that was a very prescient book um, written back in the early part of the 20th century, and it envisages a future society which uh, people have become completely reliant on technology to the point where they don't actually have any interactions with each other anymore. But then one day, the machine stops, and these people are just utterly able to cope anymore. And I remember having a conversation once with a guy who worked in a mobile phone shop, and he said he's had people in physical distress come into the shop when their phone doesn't work, saying, you, you, you need to fix it. He said, he's had a person, he said he had a girl one day crying because her phone had stopped working. She couldn't get it going again. And she'd come in in tears. The phone had stopped working like a matter of hours beforehand. That was all. So my larger point is, I think looking forward in the future, despite all the techno utopian fantasies out there, people like Elon Musk and others, that we may get to the point mainly to do with resources that the technological march as it is on at the moment can't continue at that pace. And how are people going to deal with scaling back, you know, rolling back some of the technology that we have, maybe our reliance on it? I mean, for example, can you imagine what would happen if the, if the internet, I know that the internet consists of nodes, it's not one system, mm. but if that suddenly went away? So, it might be easy for someone like me if uh, if all the telephones stopped working, if television didn't exist anymore. I'm pretty confident that emotionally and, and practically and that I could cope with it. But I do wonder about younger generations. It is not just the internet. So much now is directed by computers and by software and by artificial intelligence. Uh, with so many people on planet Earth, if somehow this breaks down, frankly, I think there will be Huge, huge problems. Yeah, but beyond the uh, beyond the practical problems, again, my concern is really for the psychological well-being of, mm. of, of many individuals. Um, no, I agree. I agree. I think uh, this is also one of the points in this article in the Guardian I mentioned earlier that uh, this is very much addictive. Uh, that there is a sort of I'm not sure if addiction is the best word, but there is a sort of dependence on constant arousal, which is something that now we get mostly from these technologies. And if this is taken away, I'm not sure what will happen psychologically, frankly. Final point, really, with regard to this, and you mentioned politics earlier at the start of the interview. Eventually, some of the people that we're talking about, some of whom may have some kind of cognitive difficulties, let's just put it like that, some of them will be in control of some things that affect a lot of other people, whether that's a corporation, whether it's an institution of some other kind, whether it's a government, whether it's an army. We can certainly see through history, actually, and long before 
the dawn of modern mm-hmm. te- modern technology, how the best people do not necessarily end up in control of things. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm thinking now about future generations of thinkers and leaders. And for all the brilliant people who are out there, you know, what might it be like a century from now? You know, will social systems and other economic systems, political systems, will they be affected by, mm-hmm. by some of the changes we're talking about? I think they already are. The main problem I see though it is not so much with uh, cognitive function, understood as IQ, is the ability to algorithmically analyze information. I think the main problem is with this dampened emotional visceral reactivity that I mentioned. This is what I think is causing the greatest distortion in thinking, and this is what makes it difficult for political leaders to um, handle difficult problems. Yes, I've actually done, you've reminded me of a couple of shows I've done with a British um, researcher called Nick Duffel, uh, based around his book, Wounded Leaders. Uh, now, he specifically talks about the British boarding school system, but the, the bottom line of his research is how a dumbed-down or a guarded or a retarded emotional, emotional response mm-hmm. and emotional ability to relate or inability to relate already is having huge effects on those in power uh, because they basically were traumatized as children. So mm-hmm. whatever causes it, having people in those sorts of positions not being rounded human beings is potentially catastrophic. Uh, yes, if you've read this book, it's wonderful. Uh, there is also research done by other psychologists. Uh, there was an Irish psychologist whose first name I don't recall right now. Uh, his last name is Robertson. And he has a great book called The Winner Effect where he describes the effects of power on leaders. And this includes also making billions in the private sphere. And he thinks it's devastating that it is essentially causing a degree of detachment and disconnect, which makes it difficult for them to have good judgment, to be responsible leaders. Well, Evelyn, uh, we just touched upon a range of topics there. Uh, spun off from your book just to mention, remind readers remind listeners once again, it's called Mental Penguins The Never-Ending Education Crisis and the False Promise of the Information Age and sadly I think these are issues that we're going to be living with for a long time to come probably the rest of our lives for certain Um, now the book's available everywhere but uh, do you have a blog or website or anything else you'd like to share before we finish? Uh, I have a website that's dedicated most to the book, and I have a blog, but I have not been able to update this recently. There is so much to do, and uh, I'll try to do a better job at that, but at this point, they're not very useful. Okay, so once again, Evelyn, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. That was a real pleasure.